Hello and welcome to Disseminate the Computer Science Research Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Wardby. Today we are joined by Lucas Vogel, who will be talking about his CIDR paper, Data Pipes, Declarative Control Over Data Movement. Lucas is a PhD student at the Technical University of Munich, and his research areas are adaptive storage and non-volatile memory. Welcome to the show, Lucas. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great stuff. Can you start off maybe by telling us a little bit more about yourself and how you became interested in researching databases and data management? Yeah, okay. So, so like you said, I'm, I'm Lucas. I'm currently a fifth-year student at uh, the database group at uh, TU Munich, and I'm now more or less pretty close to submitting my dissertation towards getting to database research. Well, uh, I think I was always interested in uh, programming close to the hardware, like think about cache locality, associativity, where that kind of stuff matters, right? Where do have to think about SIMD instructions and so on. And yeah. I never thought about databases of being in this context, right? But at TU Munich, um, the database chair is very close to hardware. So uh, during my master's, I attended a lecture where we actually had to build our own database system in C++ from the ground up um, at, with Professor Neumann. And um, this kind of showed me that database could be very close to hardware. And, and uh, then I started there and I never regretted it. So that's my path to database research amazing I, like trying to build a database from scratch as a master's sort of uh, project is quite a daunting task right i bet that was fun yeah really fun like of course we didn't do everything right but like we yeah. we, we, we got it to execute sql queries and a uh, lot of fun a lot of hard work but uh, i think there's a lecture i learned most at actually at the whole uh, master's yeah. and bachelor's degree because i actually had to build some stuff amazing yeah sounds great Cool. So let's talk about the star of the show today, data pipes. So declarative control over data movement. Can you maybe give us the high-level cell for this, kind of the elevator pitch? Yeah, of course. So I would say most programs that are performance-critical or algorithms probably are a lot about data movement as well, right? You have data on some disk or somewhere. You then have to move it to your CPU, through DRAM caches and so on, do some stuff with it, then maybe buffer it somewhere, get it back and all that kind of stuff. So you have a lot of data movement already in algorithms, if you think about it or not. And of course, hardware manufacturers noted that and um, they try to introduce shortcuts for users to use without using the CPU. So the CPU would be free for computation. So that is what brought us DMA, direct memory access, and stuff like this, right? Um, the issue, however, is that those shortcuts are often bottom-up, right? So you're not meant as a developer to know about those shortcuts. Um, the hardware thinks about them and tries to activate them whenever like it's a good thing to use them. So that movement happens implicitly. For example, think about using MAP, right? You MAP some memory region, and then um, your operating system thinks about when to move that stuff actually into uh, your DRAM, and then the CPU thinks about when to moving that stuff into cache. But however, like this is hard to use, right? This is all happening implicitly, and if you want to do it better than what the hardware figures out by itself, you have issues, right? And for those reasons, we present the vision of data pipes. So the idea is instead of this like bottom-up approach where everything is happening implicitly, we say why not do data movement top-down, right? You as the developer explicitly state which data you ex expect to be where and when to move it to where you need it so you can make more efficient use of the resources of the system. That's kind of the abstract elevator pitch, I would say. Amazing. That's really cool. Um, I guess I guess we could maybe 
as we dig into so the moment, maybe you can start by telling us a little bit more about sort of the, the modern storage hierarchy, right? And there's a lot of acronyms in this space, right? So <laughs> maybe you can sort of like give us an overview of what all these what all these things all these things mean and, and the kind of the primitives we have um available today. Yeah. I mean, a little bit there, we need the high level cell, but talk about maybe some more of the um of the other primitives we have. Actually, there was a lot of issues, right? Like when we started talking about that stuff in like in the research group, like lots of acronyms I didn't even know, and like yeah, really hard, right? So, so I give you the the overview of the most important ones, I'd say. So. I think the issue nowadays is you know, just have this classical storage hierarchy, right? You have like HED on the bottom, really slow. Then you have your DRAM and then you have your caches and your registers and so on. And like this has been true for like 40 years and applications have been built around that kind of hierarchy. The operating system expects this hierarchy to be there and so on. But the issue nowadays, we have lots of new devices that kind of fit in this hierarchy, but not really. So for example, we have NVMe SSDs, which are a lot faster compared to the old SATA SSDs also more expensive, but mostly worth it, right? Um, but they are attached over P PCIe Express, for example. Then nowadays, well, like it, it's been killed now, but uh, like a year ago, we had Intel Obtains Persistent Memory, which is like DRAM, right? You do it, address it via load and source instructions from the CPU, but it's persistent, right? You can shut the system off and you still have your memory there. The downside of it is it's, it's slower than DRAM, so it's not just a drop-in replacement. It's like slower by a factor of two or three or something. Then, of course, we also have network, right? So we can have everything that is attached locally. We can also attach it remotely via, via some network interconnect, via RDMA, we nowadays even have disaggregated storage over like CXL, which also works over PCIe Express. So yeah, so so this this pyramid is like there are lots of weird attachments to the side now. So so it's really hard to manage, and of course everything in this pyramid is also accessed differently. So so some some stuff is accessed quite easily, like for example um, SSDs over NVMe. That's just a protocol you can use or like the operating system can use. But then we have kind of those leak abstractions. For example, if you think about the cache, you in history we never really meant to 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 know about the cache, right? It's it's there to be transparent. So you just access some stuff and then it will be moved into the cache by the CPU and will be flushed when you don't need it anymore. But nowadays with, for example with persistent memory, we kind of need to have control over the cache. So we have instructions like CL flush which flushes cache lines back to DRAM. We have CLD mode, which demotes stuff from L2 cache to L3 cache. We have the prefetcher that prefetches stuff into the cache. And if you build a modern performance critical application, you have to know about that stuff, but you're not really meant to know about this actually by, by history, right? The Intel doesn't want you to control the cache as much. And then, of course, we have like even stranger shortcuts. So in the paper, we have two. We call DDIO and IOAT. So the idea of both was actually, I think IoT was introduced in 2006 by Intel, DDIO in 2012. The idea was if you have like a networking and you have a, a your network card and you have to move the package to the CPU, it's too slow to do it uh, with the CPU instructions. So with IoT, you have a DMA unit that directly moves that data into memory for you without the CPU's involvement. And we found out you can kind of misuse this to also move data between persistent memory and DRAM. Uh, I think the IoT was invented in 2006 or introduced, and uh, PMEM was introduced like three years ago. So it was never meant to be used that way, but you can kind of use it that way. A happy and, coincidence. And then, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think nobody even at Intel knew about that. It's, it's like just it turned out it worked that way, um, which is really great for us. Uh, but there are issues I think will come to them later as well. And, and the other thing is DDIO. 
Um, this was also meant for uh, networking, I think, introduced in 2012, for 100 gigabit Ethernet. And there the idea was that you could directly move st stuff from the network card into your L3 cache, because if you moved it to DRAM, it would be too slow, because then when you access it, you would have a cache and had to load it. So to process the package at like line speeds, you can directly DMA them into the cache. And turns out also, not meant by Intel that way, I think, is you don't only have to use uh, network cards for that. It works over PCIe. You can just as well use NVMe SSDs as well to move data from your SSD direct into your cache. So we thought, like, well, great, like great stuff, right? Why not use this to like uh, have more efficient data paths where we don't have to involve the CPU at all? Because everything here works with DMA. Um, but the issues with like this sort of primitives is that uh, you have a lot of different abstraction levels here, like, is it managed by the system? Is there an interface you can use? Is there an interface, but you're not really meant to use it? Different philosophies, and originally designed for different tasks, like I said, like we, we tried to use it for stuff it wasn't meant to be used. Yeah, so that's kind of a cause overview about <laughs> the mess we are in nowadays. Awesome stuff. Um, so you touched on that, you can kind of use these primitives and like DDIO to improve improve things right so you you actually have a really nice case study uh, in 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 your paper that uses external sorts illustrate the potential of these primitives if we can kind of not misuse but use them in certain ways to improve how we move data around right so can you maybe um walk us through with this example and illustrate why how it can improve yeah. so so external sort like like we said we want to speed up cases where your data movement is kind of predictable. And I thought like there's not a better example than external sort, right? It's very predictable in the way you have to move data, right? So you start with your data on some kind of background storage, let's say an SSD. Um, then you have to sort initial runs, right? Like you, you move small packets of data into your caches, then sort them and move them back to DRAM. So that's predictable movement, right? You know the size of the stuff you move in, you know the size you have to move out of your cache again. Um, then when your main memory is full, you kind of have to spill those sorted runs from DRAM to some kind of background storage. That's the point of external sort if it fit, doesn't fit into DRAM. Um, then, of course, later on, um, you have to load them back into the system. Here again, you can then move them directly into the cache because you have to merge those sorted runs in the cache again with your CPU. And then you have to write them back from, like you, you merge them, they descend to DRAM, and then from DRAM you have to merge them back, uh, uh, the uh, merged uh, runs back to uh, to the output storage, like at the end. So the idea here is that like those are really predictable movements, right? You know beforehand when to move what where, and also we found out there exists a lot of data movement primitives for that stuff, right? So for the first part where you uh, load the unsorted runs into cache, you can use DDIO to move them directly from SSD to cache. Then of course from the cache to DRAM you can explicitly flush them with a CL flush instruction from your CPU because you know you won't need that uh, piece of run again after you've sorted it. Um, uh, then from DRAM to PMEM, we can use IOAT to move from one kind of memory to the other kind of memory, uh, unbeknownst to Intel, who didn't invent it to be used that way. And then later on, we can, when we have those uh, um, sorted runs on PMEM, we can move them back into cache with IOAT as well and um, then move them back to SSD again. So we thought like, you know, it's like for every kind of movement, there exists a nice primitives that doesn't involve the CPU at all. So the CPU can be busy doing sorting or other database stuff in the background, but we do the data movement for the CPU. So we thought, why not use external sort as a motivating example and for the paper and show how you could profit here. 
Fantastic. And that's a nice segue into the into the next question is is like you actually quantified the performance gains you can get by the strategic use of these of these primitives. So can you tell us a little bit about how you actually went about quantifying? Like kind of tell us about your experimental setup and the questions you were trying to answer. Obviously you're trying to see how fast it went, right? But I mean, yeah, can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Yeah, yeah. Actually, interestingly, fastness was not really that important to us. So, so we, we we thought we had kind of two goals. So, of course, we we benchmarked DDIO and IoT, right? So, moving data to and from SSD and to and from PMEM. Um, the idea here was, for one, of course, uh, are there actually performance benefits of doing it that way, right? Like, if if the old-fashioned way of just using the CPU to move data around is as fast or faster, why why do it that way? So, the idea was, it should be at least the same speed while offloading computation. So you don't need the CPU to do that stuff. So like if, if that weren't true, like why would we care, right? But the second point, I think, and that's equally as important is um, the question was, are they actually usable in the way we wanted them to use, right? Up until now, it's just like, wouldn't it be nice if we could do that? Um, is it actually possible to do it? Uh, was not really, <laughs> well, I, like, like, like you said, like nobody used it that way. I think there are some papers that, that do, did kind of that stuff, but like I said, DDIO was meant for like Nix and IoT as well. So, so we designed two experiments. So, so for DDIO, um, we said, okay, let's assume we want to have this case where we load unsorted data in chunks from your disk uh, from SSD into um, the cache and sort them. So we simulated them by uh, moving data with uh, varying chunk size from the SSD directly to the L3 cache with DDIO enabled and disabled to compare. And then we just iterated over that data in memory to like assure that it's actually touched, right? So that it can't, like you actually need to load it into the registers. And um, on the same time, we also run a bandwidth intensive workload at the site to really uh, stress the DRAM bandwidth to make sure we actually could see if we have an advantage of directly loading into, into the cache or not. So this simulates like the system and at the same time does something completely different as well, right? We're not the only tenant on the system. Okay, so that was CDIO. And for IoT, right, the, 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 the point we wanted to make is when we have the data sorted on DRAM in, in runs, we now have to evict them into backing storage, in this case simulated by PMEM, and, uh, and then back again later on when we have to merge those sorted runs again. So in this case, um, we also had those uh, runs in varying chunk size and just moved it back and forth once with IoT enabled. And the other case where we disabled it, we just used memcopy, right? Uh, so this is the, the way you would move stuff from or to PMEM if you don't have some kind of uh, uh, DMA unit that can do that. And yeah, that, those were the two experiments we tried to run. Awesome, great. So let, let's talk numbers then. So, what were the what were the key right, results of each of the experiment? What were the, the the gains, and was it more usable as well? Obviously, there was that angle to the experiments as well. What were your findings there? Yeah. So for DDIO, we were surprised that it actually was usable, right? We 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 thought, you know, um, moving stuff into L3 cache from an SSD, you know. DRAM is already so much faster than SSD. It shouldn't really matter if you move it into DRAM or cache because, like, the time of it takes to, to, to load something from cache uh, from DRAM to cache is not that big compared to like you only have a throughput of like three gigabytes a second or something. But it turned out if you really stress the system, it makes a huge difference. Like for as long as the chunks you load fit into L3 cache, like I think we had like uh, improvements from like uh, one, one gigabit a, gigabyte a second to like 1.4 gigabytes a second or something like this. And of course also reduced latency. So DDIO actually is a good thing here, right? Uh, even if you think about really slow SSDs. 
The downside, however, like this was the second part of the experiment, the usability is really bad. Because DDIO, like it's not something Intel wants you to mess with. So so it's it's either globally enabled for a device or disabled. And there are some configuration parameters, but they're not documented at all. They are like some proprietary registers uh, in the CPU. You can kind of change some values that nobody really knows what they do, but but they make it faster or slower. And and I actually looked at like interdocumentation, and they like agreed like it would be nice to have some kind of parameters to change this, but this is not documented and not so well at the moment. And stay tuned. And I think this documentation hasn't been updated in the last ten years, so. And, and, and you know it makes sense for Intel because they say like right we built this for this one use case and it just works out of the, the box and it makes it faster so why why not just use it that way but it kind of makes it, makes it bad if you like me try to use it for something it wasn't intended to be used for so so so, so much about DDIO um, for IoT of course we also did the experiment and we found out IoT is really great if you move stuff from PMEM to DRAM so we have three times of throughput. Um, so nine gigabytes a second instead of three gigabytes a second, and on top of that, we don't have any CPU involvement at all. So the CPU is free, free to do other stuff. So this, of course, is great because PMAM actually is really intensive on the CPU because every move would be a load and store instruction because it's the same interface as DRAM. Um, so 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 great in that regard. So so really awesome. If you want to move stuff from PMAM to DRAM, use uh, IoAT. On the other hand, the issue is. If you move stuff from DRAM to PMEM, it's actually really bad, and and we were really puzzled by that. Why would it be like it's it's fast the one way? It's why shouldn't it should also be fast the other way? Also, if you move stuff that way, like PMEM has like a really high read and write bandwidth, like this shouldn't be a bottleneck. So to get behind this, we also measured um, actually the write traffic that was on the PMEM dim stick itself. So it comes in little sticks that look like normal uh, DRAM dim sticks. And you can measure on the on the physical memory what is the throughput there. And it turns out it's three times higher there than it is on uh, the data is actually moved. And we were really puzzled by that. Why is that that case? And then we found out that IoT actually has a feature which is called direct cache access, TCA. Um, the idea being that Intel said in 2006, right, if you move some stuff from one memory kind to another, you probably also want to do some computation on it because otherwise why would you have moved it so they also put it into the cache which is great if you actually want to use it but if you just want to move it out of DRAM into PMEM you don't need it to be cached because you actually explicitly don't want to access it so for one it's slower already because we have this uh, like detour to the cache the other hand also the cache is then evicted semi-randomly in the end so it's not uh, evicted sequentially and PMEM internally has like a block size of 256 bytes. So it only weighs data in 256 byte blocks. And if you write randomly to it, that means you have a write amplification, right? Because you just put some data into one of those blocks and then write the whole block back if you write random data. In this case, cache line is 64 byte, but those blocks are 256 bytes in size. So four times the size and um, you have big write amplification there. So it turns out because of this feature, that what, what is a really great idea in 2006, um, PMEM now is slow. And, and the worst thing is DCA, you can't even disable it in modern CPUs. I, I think there is some BIOS settings in like CPUs that are 15 years old, but nowadays it's just forgotten. So, so, so nothing you can do there. So like with DDIO, it's like great in theory, but in practice, it doesn't really work out really well because hardware designers 20 years ago made assumptions that just don't hold for modern hardware anymore. 
Yeah, I, I just wanted to ask you about the when you were trying to figure out how to use these and uh, you're looking in the docs, whatever, how easy was that to kind of figure out, oh, I need to change this magic number to make things go faster? It's most horrible. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, um, yeah. So, 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 so there's a mix of like documentation from 2006 of some like uh, Linux kernel maintainers that like built this stuff in 2006. Then there's like documentation 2011 why they threw it out of the kernel again because it's not. Then we have some papers that kind of try some of the stuff. Then you know there is not really an interface you can use. So we used SPDK because it supports IOAT. But then of course SPDK is like a beast of itself, in of, in of itself that is really hard to be used. It, 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 it's a mess. And like of course, like it's my own fault, right? Because we try to do something that hasn't been connected in that way before. So we can't expect like otherwise it wouldn't be interesting research. But I said like the the idea is for you like you're not meant to use that stuff in the way we used it. The idea is. Intel just built that stuff for specific workloads, and the idea is that you just buy the CPU and stuff just gets faster without you doing anything. And that is really great if you are like on this happy path and say, yeah, I have a NIC and I need 100 gigabit Ethernet and I just can buy the newest Xeon CPU and it just works. But it's like this narrow path. If you stray on this path, it's great. If you go somewhere else, it, it, it just falls apart. Yeah, yeah, cool. But I, I'm convinced that we need to do something here. So we can leverage these primitives. We can do something interesting in this space. So tell me more about the data pipes vision and maybe some of the key principles that underpin this vision. Yeah, okay. So the underlying issue to us was like this kind of bottom-up design. So, so, so those primitives are designed for a specific use case. And if your use case differs, you're kind of out of luck. So, and what we want to do is we want to say data movement should be explicit. So if you have to care about it anyway, right? Like if, if you know if you know about cache associativity and like cache sizes and uh, and uh, when to move data where anyway, you might as well do it explicitly because the interfaces don't really work and you have to work around interfaces that don't really work. You might as well have a nice interface and have to use it, right? So we want to make it declarative. So you say, tell the system what to move where and when, but not how. And and to this end, um, we introduced two things. So first one is a type system um, for the location that the data could be in. So currently, if you look at the status quo, more or less everything is just kind of a pointer, right? So an access to some memory location might, either the, you know, the data being pointed to is already in DRAM, then it just moves the data into caches. Maybe it's already cached, then nothing happens at all. Maybe like the memory area you point to was like mapped and actually is on a slow HDD and accessing it might just uh, be a page fault and you have to move all the stuff into uh, into DRAM and then into cache. Maybe it uses the OS page cache and so on. So actually you don't really know what's happening if you just access some data. So instead what we want to introduce is um, what we call resource locators. And the idea is that everything is behind a resource locator. And this resource locator forces you to think about it, right? For example, you would never directly access a byte in a HDD resource locator, while you would in a cache resource locator. And this forces you to think about where your data actually is. And secondly, after we've typed our memory in that way, we can say, okay, now to move data between resource locators, which is important, right? Like you can't process data that is being stored on SSD. Um, we, we introduce the concept of data pipes. And data pipes... Are, uh, are pipes that kind of connect those locators. So you can think about a DRAM to PMEM pipe uh, that uses IoT or a PMEM to cache pipe 
that uses IoT the other way, way around is direct cache access. And um, the idea is that this pipes then connect between those locators, and then you have some kind of transmit call or something similar, which moves, actually issues um, a request to move that data. And um, this makes it declarative and explicit. And optimally, of course, those pipes map onto existing primitives like IOAT or DDIO or whatever, um, or maybe even new primitives in the future if vendors introduce new uh, primitives. Of course, there are no primitives for all combinations of source and sync, right? So you might have a software fallback for those kinds of things. But even if you use a software fallback, at least you have this notion of, you know, where your data is and where it's been moved to. And what we also present in the paper is uh, different flavors of pipes. So the idea is that you declare, but then in the background, some runtime has to schedule the movement, when to move what where. And um, we have like three proposals where we say like one would be you have like this blocking system, like traditional IO, where for example, you would use a read syscall to, to move the data. You, like you say pipe.transmit and then the pipes block until it's done. We also have this approach where say maybe you want to have inversion of control where you just say, I want this data moved there and please notify me when you're done. Or we even have an approach where we say maybe the OS could have support for pipes as well. But in, in summary, like the vision is that we say we have those kind of implicit leaky abstractions and we would like them to be like an explicit intentional interface where you declare what to move there. Awesome. Yeah, I'd just like to touch on what does what would the, the syntax look like for this? Obviously, it's harder in a audio medium to kind of talk about yeah. this. But like how how would how would that look like? Yeah. So 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 in the in the paper, we actually have like uh, three different uh, code listings to actually show you how the syntax could look like. Of course, um, it's hard to describe here, but yeah, the idea is to to to, to use a pipe. What you would do is you first would declare your locators, right? Would say okay, um, kind of a case of external sort. I, I have data on SSD, so I declare an SSD locator, which would, as an argument, for example, take like the path to the file, um, if it's like a file on an SSD. And then, of course, I say, okay, um, I want to move that data into the cache. So I would also have a cache resource locator, which says, okay, I want to move that data um, to be processed. It needs to be in the cache. And this is already assuming a lot, right? This already assumes that cache is kind of addressable which is currently not really true. But but uh, nonetheless, this is the vision we have. And then, of course, you have like um, those two locators, and then you just instantiate a pipe. You say, like, okay, I want to have a pipe from locator A being the SSD locator to locator B being the cache locator. And, and this just instantiates a pipe, and then you just call some kind of transfer method that moves the data from the from the SSD to the cache. The idea being that, however, everything up until the transfer call is just declarative. So we tell the system where we have our data, where we want it to be, and how it should be connected. But we don't tell the system, like we don't issue uh, calls to transfer the data before we actually need it. So, so the idea is that the system already knows of your intentions before you actually uh, move the data. So it can do optimizations there as well. Nice, cool. I guess I'd just like to maybe touch on a little bit as well. What do you think the sort of the limitations slash downsides of this vision would be? Obviously, we're adding like another abstraction layer, and so maybe there might be some potential performance implications there with that another abstraction layer. Um, yeah, so maybe you could elaborate on 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 that for us a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So, so first of all, um, regarding performance, yeah, you're, you're right, right? It's, it would be an an abstraction that would have performance impact. So, so one thing is, we don't really. Like, like for us, if the performance stays the same, this is already a win. So 
of course, performance is important, but, but I'd say for us, it's more important to kind of get this vision where you be intentional about the stuff. And, and even if the performance of like transferring data would not be faster, the, the, the whole thing about it being intentionally and you only transfer what you actually need to transfer already probably impacts the overall performance of the system again. So yeah, but, but you're right. This, this is one possible downside. There are other downsides. So another downside is it's not really applicable if you don't know where to move data beforehand. So in like this big data intensive workloads, that's easy to know. But like if you say like have a system that has a lot of transactions, transactional database systems, you might have a lot of erratic random reads or writes where you really don't know beforehand because you don't know when the user will start a new transaction. In that case, pipes are not really a great fit, I'd say. So if if like you know moving data around is not your problem, pipes might not be the fit for your problem. And of course, um, pipes kind of want to use the primitives, um, uh, optimize primitives, right? So if we already have primitives, pipes were great. If we don't have primitives for some kind of device pair, we would like to have the primitive for that pair. But, you know, it's asking a lot to, to go to Intel and tell them that right now, like we have this vision, like, please, please build this thing. So <laughs> we don't think that's like a, a way uh, <laughs> we can go. So, um, so yeah, it's kind of dependent on there being being primitives to use. So, so we think with the primitives that are already there, it's already a good thing. And like I said, you can have software fallbacks. And even if you just use software, we think that's a good abstraction to have. But op um, optimally, we would have more primitives there as well. Awesome. So you never know, right? It could become so popular, hopefully, that it actually then the kind of feedback loop, Intel actually motivated to kind of uh, almost like kind of fall in line a little bit or kind of help out in that sense. So maybe we yeah. will see, I guess. But, but I think the, the issue here is that, that Intel really, like, it's a, just a mismatch of, 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 um, of what, the, what the, the goal is. Because yeah, yeah. for us, it's like, you know, like we, we are experts in the system and, and we want to, to use it to the fullest of its potential. And, you know, we are, in the database community, we think about that stuff, right? Like how can you optimize uh, for, for caching and so on? But for Intel, like they, they want to sell the customer. Do you have like this big legacy application and like just use our chip and like we build this custom like kind of, accelerator for exactly your use case and it will get faster and you don't have to do anything and for like this is a big selling point for those people because they don't build new systems they maintain like big legacy systems so yeah. so I, I think this is kind of the crux here that that there are different kind of goals to optimize for cool um okay so where do we go now uh, next with with data pipes and what's next on the research agenda how do you go about realizing this this vision one thing Intel already uh, announced it's or like it's I think it's already released with Sapphire Rapids platform their data stream accelerator that already like tries to unify all all the stuff a little bit so so we would like to of course look at that uh, we really didn't have um, hardware or the time with the data pipes paper to do that and of course there are lots of like open questions to tackle like like it's it's not secret this is mostly a vision paper here right so so we have some code to to prove that stuff. But like it's not an implementation you can just use in your code. Um, so, so I think a big open question is, for example, how could we schedule the data movement, right? Like currently, we say there's probably some kind of runtime you tell it to transmit data from uh, through this pipe from A to B. But how does this runtime actually look, right? Um, is it just like does it just run on an additional core? Is like a so just some kind of library in the background? 
maybe would it be an OS feature that your operating system would support data pipes as like native thing where you can then just uh, like uh, f open dev slash SSD pipe or something like this. Or even thinking further, we thought about a lot about like cloud context, right? Um, like, for example, um, in the cloud, you have big issues with like noisy neighbors, right? If you have like two people running on the same hardware and one like tries to do a, like a data intensive workload, it might steal resource from the other one. And for that reason, they have to over provision a lot, right? So that if something like this happens, they can kind of buffer it. But if you had data pipes, of course, in the cloud context, your your system would know about you, your intention to move data and could schedule it more efficiently. So in the cloud context, we think it could reduce a lot of issues of noisy, noisy neighbors, and therefore you don't need to overprovision as much, which makes it really enticing for cloud vendors, in our opinion. So yeah, cloud context would be another thing we would like to look into. Cool. Um, awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, for my for my next question, obviously, with this bit of vision paper, there's 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 not necessarily a tool that a software developer can go away and use today. But how how do you think kind of data data engineers, database administrators can leverage the findings in your research and kind of maybe longer term, what impact do you think it could potentially have? I think. Yeah, like 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 you said, it's a vision paper, so so you can't just take the implementation and make stuff faster right now. But but I think the biggest well, takeaway should be that uh, the paper should inspire people to be more intentional about the data movement and and think about what's actually happening below the stack because we're like building abstractions on top of abstractions on top of abstractions, right? Like. If you nowadays, like I said before, and if you access a pointer, you have no idea what's actually happening. Like, of course, you can find out, but in general, and, and then people are happy about that because it's easy. But I think if we throw away a lot of those abstractions and re-engineer them in a way to be like more close to the hardware, like for example, data pipes could be a bit pretty thin wrapper around like those primitives we talked about earlier. Um, you could get an interface that's not a lot harder to use what we have, but could you give you a lot more benefits and performance uh, uh, benefits. So so I think the takeaway here is think about how data is being moved in your system. Yeah. If you think about, for example, like 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 uh, Postgres or something, like database systems, they were engineered like 30 years ago. And, and their whole thing is that they say, right, um, HDDs are slow. We don't need to care to optimize a lot of other stuff in the beginning because we are I.O. bound anyway. And and like I don't fault them for it, right? Like this is how it has been. Um, but but if you throw away this assumption nowadays with the hardware you have and the accelerators you have, you might have engineered the system completely different. Just thinking about that, I think could could uh, bring some benefits. Yeah, sure. I was just gonna say that the general the general awareness of this is obviously is I think is in itself a um, has potential for big impact. So yeah, cool. Whilst you were working on this, obviously you've kind of touched on loads of different. You've kind of gone deep into the weeds and setting like loads of different sort of primitives and different sort of um, pieces of hardware and, and whatnot. So, if you can kind of capture what was the most sort of interesting um, thing you kind of learned while working on this on this paper, maybe the thing that kind of caught you off guard as well. I, I think the biggest thing probably was like the the difference between uh, theory and the real world. <laughs> so <laughs> um, it, it's not my first paper, right? So in my previous papers, in the beginning, I said, like, I would like to do this. 
And then I mostly achieved that. And of course, there were like setbacks and roadblocks and like detours and bumps on the way, like, like otherwise it wouldn't be an interesting research paper. But in the end, I more or less did what I intended to do. And here, the story of the paper more or less completely changed half the way through as we didn't really found a way to achieve our original goal because our original goal was actually to build this uh, merge sort thing um, uh, and, and say like, see, like you can build a really fast merge sort. And, and then I, I started implementing it. And um, I found like, like we talked about earlier, we found lacking documentation, interfaces didn't really work. You had to use opinion frameworks like SPTK and so on. Like it got really messy uh, turned out uh, let's not write a paper about this merge sort write a paper about like how messy it is and how could you do it maybe better and turned out that like embracing those difficulties uh, and making them to a story in the end really worked out great and um, I, I think the paper really got better because of it because I'm pretty proud now that our paper solves a problem that I know it exists because I encountered it while trying to write a different paper Um <laughs> So, so yeah, I think the biggest lesson here is to like embrace failure, I guess. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. I was like not happy when it didn't work, and I go, oh, no, like sleepless nights, right? Like the whole paper falls apart, but then it turns out actually <laughs> it made the paper better in the end, I guess. Yeah, yeah that's good. I, I mean, I normally ask kind of um, about the origin story and 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 the background of the paper and how like how bumpy how the, how how bumpy that journey was from the kind of initial conception of the idea to 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 the actual end paper but it it seems like the whole thing changed on you halfway through which was uh, <laughs> i guess unpleasant but in the end it worked out for the best right yeah and like like i said the the the, the thing that kind of uh, held the paper together however from the beginning to end was that we had this idea right we have those well behaved algorithms and they are about data movement and how can we make this work and 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 I think this was like the core of the story from the beginning to end. So I think this helped us that we said like, yeah, but we have this problem and maybe we approach another aspect of that problem, but we still try to solve this problem about how can we have those well-behaved workloads where we know what data moves from when to where, how can we make them better? Sure. Just that, just out of interest. I mean, obviously a lot of uh, kind of building off this assumption, having that well-behaved um uh, algorithm just so we can kind of control i guess the state space of things that can kind of go on but how, how do you think it would perform on certain algorithms that are maybe a bit more unpredictable mm, yeah so so this this is an idea we had like halfway from the paper i think that in actuality if you think about data structures all they do always is try to kind of make workloads into well-behaved workloads so if if you think about like B trees or hash tables or whatever, or like let's say LSM trees, right? Where you try to LSM trees are like this, this append only data structure where you like try to append new data and in the background try to merge them um, to make like sequential reads and writes all the time because they're optimized for disks where sequential reads and writes are king. And in the end, right? Like uh, for example, if you use like some key value store with an LSM tree backing it. This workload is not well behaved. You have like random reads and writes coming in all the time, but the LSM tree kind of forces your erratic workload into a well behaved one by by making it well behaved by being append only and then being a sequential write. So, so, so I think you can make most not well behaved workloads into well behaved workloads by thinking about the right data structure. And yeah, we we thought about data structures about this like workload transformers, which which try to transform them into something that then again could benefit like an i see an lsm tree could benefit from a data pipe because it's really predictable then but um 
of course, there you have to build stuff on top that's like not covered by the paper, right? You need the right data structures to make that work. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess also as well, uh, what sort of other research are you working on at the moment? I mean, you've mentioned before that you this isn't your first paper, right? Fifth year PhD student, you've been through this process many a times. So, kind of what other research are you working on at the moment, or have been in the past? Yeah, so 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 my my, my first big thing was actually um, uh, analytical query processing. So um, and and there actually right price matters a lot. Like you have this big cloud uh, databases where you have to read a lot of data, and um, and like uh, hardware becomes a commodity, and you need to be cheap. And and there I built like Mosaic, which was a storage engine which can uh, fetch the data for you, right? It's like part of the database system, but it also can recommend you what hardware you should buy to maximize your performance for the given budget, right? So the idea was that it says, right, like 80% of your data you don't read anyway, so you might as well put it on the cheapest storage possible. And then it draws you like this nice Pareto curve. Is it like if you increased your budget by 10%, you could increase your performance by 30%. On the other hand, like if you are out of budget, like, if from 80% of the budget, you could still have like 95% of the performance or something like this. And I published this as VLDB uh, three years ago. And then I said, okay, enough of analytical, let's do transactional. And then I built um, Plush, Plush, which is a, a persistent hash table for persistent storage. And it kind of tries to be an LSM tree at the same time as well. So the idea here is that uh, persistent memory has um, a really low write latency, like insanely low. Um, so it's uh, comparable to uh, DRAM and uh, at the same time being persistent. So we thought, why not leverage this to have like a data structure that can cope a lot with inserts? And um, so we take the best of LSM trees and apply it to uh, hash tables um, and let this work on persistent memory. Unfortunately, Intel now killed persistent memory, which I'm still very angry about because I think it's like it's such great hardware like it has such low write latency it won't be reached in the next decade by anything else i guess but i guess it just didn't make it profitable enough for them so turns out they killed it yeah so those were the big other two papers i uh, i wrote in the past the second one being on vldb uh, 22 but but now um yeah we think about some follow-up for data pipes but I probably won't be the um, the primary author for that because I'm currently in the process of finishing my dissertation. So, <laughs> um, cool. Yeah, yeah. The, the next question I, I like to ask this to all my guests, and it's really interesting to see how the responses diverge. It's about the kind of the creative process of generating ideas and then selecting which ones to work on. So, I'd like to kind of get your take on how you approach this. Yeah. So, so, so I think I never really had a structured approach there. So, so what I did is I said, like, let's do whatever sounds fun and interesting at the moment within reasons. So I had this discussion, I think, after my first big paper with, like, my supervisor and some senior lab members. I said, like, right, like, I did this mosaic thing now, right? It's, it's, it's on VLDB and it's great and I like it. Should I now like look into different aspects of that and like how can we do it in the cloud? How can we do it fast? And I said, of course you can do that, but that sounds pretty incremental. And also, you will never have the chance in your life to be as self-guided again as you are now as a PhD student. So just do what is fun, right? So because you you have the opportunity now. So so I thought, yeah, okay, like um, PMM sounds pretty interesting. Um, new stuff from Intel. Uh, upcoming technology. I didn't know that it would be killed a year later, but uh, um, still, and uh, um, I did analytical analysis to transactional stuff. And 
So I came to that, and um, I'm very grateful for my supervisor, of course, because he allows me that freedom. Right? He says, like, yeah, as long as you do some interesting stuff, it's fine. So, so, so I really, yeah, my my way to do it was just like do what seems fun within like the confines of like the general topic that that has to be done. Because yeah, I awesome. I try to enjoy my PhD and do what what sounds interesting to me. As a guiding sort of principle, if if it, if it's fun and interesting, right, then then it, it naturally is a it makes you enjoy working on something more enjoyable, and therefore maybe you generate more ideas based off the fact that yeah. you're enjoying also, it. Right? Also, yeah. uh, um, my supervisor once told me the the issue is right. You you can do a lot of follow up stuff on stuff you already did, but as soon as you exactly know what the path will be, it's by definition not an interesting research topic. But because you know, if if there isn't the possibility to fail, it's probably not something very new or novel. So, right, do something out there, right? Maybe it fails, but as we've seen in the data pipes, Piper, it still turns out uh, interesting. Um, and like, if you just yeah, let's write ten thousand lines of code, and then it, this will just work. It might also be a nice paper, but I think it's definitely not as interesting as, as something that's totally out there and might as well just not be worth it. Yeah, I think you hit on a nice point there, and also as well, the fact that something doesn't work in itself can often be interesting, right? Like, it doesn't have to be the when you start out, the the, the end goal doesn't have to be this perfect, amazing, super fantastic system or whatever, right? Like the fact that you tried something and it failed is in itself interesting result a lot of the time, right? And yeah, but and maybe it's harder to publish yeah. that sort of inf- that sort of stuff, right? Yeah, you know, unfortunately, it's really like hard to publish negative findings. I think yeah. still because like there's still the stigma of why should I care? I think it would be a lot better as a research community if we encourage that more. Yeah, I agree with you there, Lucas. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Um, I guess I guess kind of on that a little bit. Like, what what do you think is the the, the biggest challenge in uh, database research at the moment? Hmm. Uh, I I think I have. Two answers. So the, the the first one would be, let's say, outward facing. So I think the issue is to get people outside of our community to to see how great database systems are. So I talked a lot with like the bioinformatics people at uh, our university and also like machine learning people. And you know they do a lot of stuff outside the database system, right? They they just use the database system as like the store of data, and then they do all their stuff in Python, and then they like try to reinvent joins and uh, sorts and like do all of this on the application level. And um, of course, we can now like point at them and say, yeah, of course you don't know how it's supposed to be, but I think it's a failure on us that we as a community didn't get those on board to to to. To, to build the tools into our databases for them to use. So I, I think we should invest a lot more into like the tooling to make it easier for such people to use our systems and show the advantages. For example, if you look at um, DuckDB, um, they just like build a really easy to use database system. You know, it's like two lines of code and it works and it just can replace whatever else people used beforehand just out of the box. And it, had like has great adoption because of that and i think we totally uh, missed the goal there in the past so so i think that's a direction we could go in more and then i, I think inward facing um so i think that's like <laughs> the tu munich thing where we say people leave a lot of performance on the table um, so we like like we talked about earlier we build abstractions on top of abstractions we build like spark clusters with lots of uh, instances and lots of nodes and I think if we really carefully engineer the system, we can do a lot on a single node and um, 
yeah it's, but it's like really hard work to do but i think especially nowadays where like performance doesn't scale as nicely uh, uh like like slows down the improvements over, over the years um it it is worth a lot if we maybe refocus a little bit and try to to get out the most of the hardware we actually have standing around and it's mostly idling oh, yeah i totally agree it's a really interesting like challenges facing is there the uh when you were talking about the outward face one like the first thing that came to mind was duck dbs oh yeah well and they kind of they've positioned themselves perfectly of you know, solving that sort of like usability problem and getting it in like like getting I guess, data scientists and data uh, to use databases, right? Because I, I have yeah. similar sort of experience to you there, like people in bioinformatics and other sort of areas that they don't don't want to touch a database, right? Because a lot of the time it's kind of hard to install and hard to operate. They're just like, oh, no, I'll just reinvent the wheel myself in my own um, hacky way, right? But no, yeah, so you agree there. And also, again, on the, on the, um, on the uh, inward-facing kind of um, direction as well, I feel like, people a lot historically have been like yeah we want to make this distribute we want to get as many nodes throw as much computer as possible and that doesn't necessarily give you the best outcome i don't think so like you say we leave a lot of performance on the table i'll have done in the past so yeah interesting stuff um i guess it's time for the last last question now so mm-hmm. what's the the one thing you want the listener to take away from this from your work and from this this podcast today yeah so so i would say the main thing is um we shouldn't try to hide um the complexity of what has happening below us on the stack. So, so we should be aware of it. Um, and uh, of course, not everybody can manage all the complexity and not everybody should. So I think we should uh, have nice interfaces helping us to deal with that complexity and we should think about them. And I think we all agree if CPUs were invented last year, exactly with the performance they have now, we would probably have chosen a lot of different abstractions for the stuff because a lot of stuff has just grown over the years because it was a good idea at the time. So I think we should take care of that and think about how we could re-engineer stuff to more better fit the current uh, landscape. And um, so I would say, like, if you're concerned at all with performance, think of what happening is below the stack, yeah, below you in the stack, and and how could we better um, speak with that part would be the big takeaway for me. Great stuff. Well, let's let's end it there. Thanks so much, Lucas, for coming on the show. It's been a fascinating conversation and best of luck with the write-up. I hope that um, goes smoothly and you hit the hit the Q2 deadline. Um, great stuff. Yeah. Um, if the listener is in- interested in knowing more about Lucas's work, we'll put links to um, all the relevant materials in the show notes. And if you enjoy the podcast, please consider supporting the show through Buy Me A Coffee. And we will see you all next time for some more awesome computer science research.